Turn to Acts chapter 1, if you would. Acts chapter 1. You know, Sarah Joy was sharing tonight. I just thought God was fangirling Job. Wow. I mean, where, is, where, are these, are, where does our generation get some of these terms? I, I don't know. I'm still learning. Still learning. I'm on that learning curve. You know, I, I've heard it said that there are four stages in life. The first stage is believing in Santa Claus. The second stage is not believing in Santa Claus. In the third stage, you are Santa Claus. And in the fourth stage, you look like Santa Claus. I'll be honest with you, the older that you get, yes, we can feel that way. The more that we love this word restoration. Uh, Donald's not here to be with us tonight. His, he had spasms in his neck and probably some other things. When we left last night, I don't know, it was probably about 10 o'clock I left. For, uh, because they had the guys over there. Um, Donald had this cool little ice pack thing around his neck, and he was kind of just chilling, literally. And uh, apparently he had spasms in his neck. Um, I, I, I've been having an issue with mine, uh, with a, a muscle over here, and it's like, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at Donald last night. I see you, bro. Yeah, okay, keep talking. And uh, this morning it, it was a little bit worse, um, but we, I love this word restoration. Guys, let's be, how many, and ladies, and ladies, how many of us are longing for heaven in which we are fully restored? Amen? Are you longing for that day? Some of you young people are raising your hand. What's up with that? That's great, though. That's great. I like that. Because God's not just going to restore us young people, or us, <laughs> us old people. He's going to restore all of us. I'm looking forward to that. But I want us to talk about restoration tonight. I want us to talk uh, about what God does in restoration. You know, in my business, I, I paint cars. I, I do bumpers. I, I used to do much more than that, but uh, EPA kind of has limited us guys who do this outside. And so I just do bumpers. And I, my goal is to take that bumper and restore it as close to factory as I can. Um, and it's possible. But the goal is factory. I just want to tell you something here. God's goal is not factory. God's goal in restoration is beyond factory. God's goal in restoration is to do something so new and awesome in our lives. It's beyond restoration. It is beyond just what Adam experienced. It's beyond what we have experienced in the past. So when we're talking about restoration tonight, I want you to get this understanding that God not only wants to restore, he wants to make better. So here's what I want you to do. On the back of your sermon, where it says sermon notes, I want you to write down one thing. That you would like to see God restore and make better. One thing. Think about that. One thing that you want to see God restore in your life and make better. I believe God delights in restoration. Tonight, the sermon is entitled The River of Restoration. The River of Restoration. But first I want to talk about this concept of restoration. Are you there with me in Acts chapter 1, verses 3 through 8? I'm going to be reading from the New International Version, and this is... Exactly what it says. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about what, church? Just say it. Are you with me? Acts chapter 1. I'll start over. Acts chapter 1. That's in the New Testament. You can go to Matthew that's the wrong chapter, that's the wrong book though. Then you go to Mark, that's not the right book either. Luke, John, and then Acts. There we go, Acts chapter 1. And it says there in verse 3, follow me now. Actually, I'm checking to make sure I started with verse 3. Maybe this is my fault. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing, how many convincing proofs, church? Many, thank you. Just making sure you're with me here. Many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Thank you. You are there. He spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, 
What was he talking about with them, by the way? The kingdom of God. That's right, that's right. Just want to make sure I had remembered there. On one occasion while he was eating with them and talking about the kingdom of God, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. There we go. He's talking about the kingdom of God. Now he's talking about the Holy Spirit that they're going to be baptized with. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, big question here, Lord. Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. But... Now, I want you to highlight that word, but, put bracket or, or a square or circle around it or make it stand out to you because that is a contrast word. We're going to come back to that. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Restoration. There are two questions that I want to ask. I'm only going to spend a little bit of time on the first question. And, but we're going to dig into the second question. Uh, very, as much as we possibly can. Now, first question is, what is the restoration of the kingdom to Israel? And question number two is, why even ask this question? I really want us to dig into that one. Why did they even ask this question? Why even ask this question after Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God and the giving of the Holy Spirit? Well, let's just make some observations. Question number one. <coughs> Excuse me. What is the restoration of the kingdom to Israel? Number one, let's realize that Jesus does not discredit their question. He merely focuses on the time element. Let me give you an example. Someone might walk, to me, walk up to me and say, So, Mike, are you going to be running for president? Or are you going to become president? I could answer in two different ways. I could answer very truthfully, I have no intentions of ever becoming president. Or I could say, let's not be concerned about the timing of that. Now, can I be honest with you, if I answered that the second way, then there obviously is some truth to their question, that there must be some sort of desire for me to become president. But you see, when I asked that question, so Mike, do you want to become president, what did you immediately think of? President of the United States. How many of you thought of that? Okay, most of you. Most of you. Did any of you think president of anything else? One other person. Okay, good. So actually, maybe, and this isn't the case, but hypothetically, maybe I have this longing to become president of my denomination. And I'm not even part of a denomination, so you know it's hypothetical. It's, uh, we're non-denominational, but I am linked in with, with a, a, a network of pastors. But let's say I want to become president of this denomination because I want to help lead the people in, and the pastors back to the truth of the gospel because I have, as I've been praying, I've realized they have really moved off course. And so I want to become president. I mean, isn't, wouldn't that be a noble goal? But I don't want to become president of the United States. I want to become president of my denomination. So someone asked me, so Mike, with that understanding now, so Mike... Do you want to become president? I could very fairly respond, let's not be concerned about the timing of that. Even though I know in their mind they're thinking about president of the United States, I mean president of the denomination, but I'm not going to talk about that. All I'm going to be concerned about is let's not talk about that right now. You know, it's probably not going to happen in the near future. This is what Jesus does. I don't want to talk about whether, you know, what was in the disciples' minds when they asked that question. But we do need to know something about the nature of that question. Okay? First of all, 
I want to make sure I make my second. Okay, the second observation that we can make of this is that it does not say, are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And this is a very literal translation, by the way. It would have to be in a different declension. The noun would have to be, Israel would have to be in a different declension for it to be of Israel. And so I'm not going to get into the declensions. It is literally, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Not the kingdom of Israel. What does the kingdom of Israel say to you? Are you if they were to ask Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? You would immediately think of the kingdom back in the Old Testament in which David perhaps was king. It was political in nature. But that's not their question. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And so consequently, they are not referring to a political kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. Now, we know this because this is by far and away the focus of Jesus' ministry when he's talked about the kingdom of God. What subject were, was he talking about at that moment? The kingdom of God. Thank you, Juliana. The kingdom of God, that was his focus. That has always been his focus. It has never been the kingdom of Israel. But are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus had always talked about a spiritual kingdom. He, he never referred to a political or earthly kingdom this side of the return. He, he never did that. This has always been about... A spiritual kingdom. The second thing is that this is a restoration that they're asking about. What does that imply? If you're going to restore something, that means it was lost or had been taken away. What kingdom had been taken from Israel that the Jews would know about. What kingdom would have been taken from them? Now, if you were to look at Matthew chapter 21, verse 43, Jesus gave them a parable and he concluded it with this. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. In Romans 11, it talks about the nation of Israel being grafted out of the olive tree. But then he says, and we talked about this, when the Gentiles, when they have reached their, uh, their, their complete number, the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then all Israel will be saved. Then you were going to see the fullness of the Jews come in. And we looked at, and those are two expressions used in Romans chapter 11, the rest, or the, 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 the full number or the fullness of the Jews and the fullness of the Gentiles. And when this happens, the Gentiles' full number, then all Israel will be saved. And the kingdom at that moment, will, they will be grafted into the olive tree. Do you see that? That there is coming a time, right now, there's a small percentage of Jews. It's increasing every day. God is doing something awesome in the Jewish community today, as they are looking to Jesus more and more and more as the Messiah and as their Savior, the one who died on the cross for them. And there's coming a day in which that, that percentage of those who are Jews, who are also believers in Jesus, there's coming a day in which that, that percentage will just erupt, it will explode. The best way to talk about that is the nation or the people of Israel are being engrafted back into the olive tree. And Romans 11 talks about this. However, Jesus listens to what they're saying, restoring the kingdom to Israel. Yes, you know what? That is something that's going to happen down the road. It's, it's only going to begin in Acts 2. I'm paraphrasing Jesus right now. It's going to happen down the road. You don't need to know about the times and dates. What you need to be concerned about is what is about to happen to you right now in just 10 days. It was only 10 days after Jesus ascended into heaven that the Holy Spirit was poured out. And that's what he wants them to focus on. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Because that is the topic that he's been talking about. The baptism with the Holy Spirit. 
So the second question. And this is the one that I want us to sink our teeth into. Why would they even ask this question? Why would they make this association of, you know, the kingdom of God and then Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit and then suddenly, oh yeah, restoration of the kingdom to Israel. Why would they even ask this question? Uh, did Jesus talk about it somewhere in his ministry? Not necessarily. He did talk about the Holy Spirit, don't get me wrong. Jesus is basically saying to them in his response to their question, wrong question, really, really close though, but wrong question. But I like your heart behind it. You're on the right track, but your question just is not relevant to what I'm talking about right now. That, the restoring the kingdom of Israel, that, that's down the road. There is a restoration, though. It concerns Israel. It is a very common phrase, and it's used. It starts in Deuteronomy chapter 30. We're going to get to that in just a little bit. But it's used many, many, many times. Psalm 126. I'm not going to get to Psalm 126. But it uses this phrase twice. Sometimes, and you're going to see this in some of your Bibles, this phrase is, in Hebrew is translated, return of the captivity... Of Israel and others, it's the restoration of the fortunes of Israel. We're restoring the fortunes to Israel. Again, this is this phrase is used many, many times. So this, however, is strongly associated with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So I want us to go to Joel chapter three. Now, Joel chapter 2 is what Peter quotes from in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. But I want us to look at Joel chapter 3, verse 1, initially. Joel chapter 3, verse 1. If you hit Amos, you went a little bit too far. Back up just one book. Joel is right before Amos, right after Hosea. So if you got to Hosea, go right. If you got to Amos, go left. And we'll find our happy place right there, chapter 3, verse 1. Are you there? In those days, and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, and he goes on and he talks about gathering all nations, bringing them to the valley of Jehoshaphat, bringing judgment upon them. I'm not going to get into chapter 3. I want us to look at this concept right now. The restoration of the fortunes of Judah or to Judah or to Jerusalem or to Israel. The restoration of the fortunes. Now, there are many in our day today. You can go online. You can listen to sermons. You can read books. And many, many, many of them will say the restoration of the fortunes of Israel is taking place right now. If you were to go over there, you look at their land. They've invented a new irrigation system. A new irrigation system. And Israel is starting to bloom even in the desert. There's a high percentage of engineers. High percentage of uh, highly educated people. Many doctors. Many lawyers. Not, Not necessarily that's a good thing. But many, many uh, well-to-do, educated people, and God is restoring the fortunes to Israel. This is how they understand it. It's begun in 1948 and is continuing on today. Is, Is that a fair understanding of what he is talking about here? Are we seeing that unveiled today? I would say yes, but not in the way they're understanding it. And I believe that the way this, that Joel meant this phrase is, has a powerful dynamic, powerful application for us in our present day. Look at those first few words there. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes to Israel. Now, if he was talking about uh, something other than what precedes, and he is now trying to, and if he were to word it like this, in the day and at the time when I restore the fortunes to Israel or restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, 
And then he continued on with chapter, with verse 2, I will gather all nations. It would have nothing to do with chapter 2. But that is not how he words it. In those days, and that is in the Hebrew very clearly, that word those. And at that time, and that word is in the Hebrew as well. You, will, you should find that in every translation. In those days and at that time. What days? At what time? Joel is purposely pointing to what he had just been talking about. Well, here's my point. The restoration of the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem is what he just spoke about in Joel chapter 2. Let's find out what he was talking about. Actually, we're going to need to back up a little bit into Joel chapter 2, starting with verse 28. This is the section that Peter preached on on the day of Pentecost. The restoration of the fortunes of Israel has everything to do with these verses that we are about to read. And afterward... I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness. The moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. By the way, that word dreadful means awesome or awe-inspiring in the Hebrew. Not just dreadful as in scary, but dreadful as in overwhelmingly amazing. And so actually when you read the way Peter translated it, he used the word glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance... ...as the Lord has said among the survivors whom the Lord calls. When was this passage fulfilled? Or when was it started? Did it start to become fulfilled? Peter tells us that this that you hear, this speaking in tongues... ...by the way, in the Old Testament the word prophecy basically meant... ...inspired speech, divinely inspired speech. So tongues would fit into that category of prophecy. As we move into the New Testament, prophecy and tongues... ...and interpretation of tongues and teaching and instruction... ...and um, trying to think of other speaking gifts. Uh, There are others. They, They are... ...categorized. In the Old Testament it was just the word prophecy. But in the New Testament now... ...he divides them up to be very specific... ...so that people understand the various gifts of the Spirit. Okay? So this word prophecy covers that category of speaking in tongues. This is what's going to happen. Peter said this that you hear the speaking in tongues... ...well that sounds really strange. The truth is... Joel prophesied about this. And in this time between the cross and his second coming... ...God is going to pour out his spirit. People are going to prophesy. People are going to have visions. It's not just going to happen in the very beginning of those last days. It's going to happen throughout the last days. Now the Hebrew just says afterward... ...the Septuagint... The Greek translation here uses words that that literally say in the last days. So that's what Peter was quoting. He was quoting from the Septuagint. And so he he didn't say and afterward. He translated the Septuagint that said in the last days. And so it's fair enough to say so in the last days all of this awesome stuff will be happening. And he then goes on in chapter 3 verse 1 in those days. And at that time... When I'm restoring the fortunes to Israel, so from the cross or Pentecost all the way to his second coming, guess what Jesus is going to be doing? He's going to be pouring out his spirit. That's right. People are going to be prophesying, having visions. That's right. 
but he is going to be restoring the fortunes to Israel. He is, in essence, taking this church age and he's giving it a new name, the restoration of the fortunes of Israel. In those days and at that time, I, when I restore the fortunes to Israel, and then chapter 3 follows with the various things that he's going to do. Now, I don't want to get into chapter 3, but I do want us to understand the restoration of the fortunes of Israel has everything to do with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' disciples knew this. There is a restoration for God's people that was coming and it was integrally associated with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not the only place in which we see this. I want you to turn with me now to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37. Go left. If you hit Daniel, go left one more book to chapter 37. <coughs> this is the vision of the valley of dry bones. Bones scattered throughout the valley. They're dead. They're lifeless. They represent the people of Israel. The people of God. Now in verse 5 he says, this is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. Go over to verse 14. He says, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord, that I the Lord have spoken and have done it, declares the Lord. We see three things here. We see the giving of the spirit, which prophetically is the breath. ...that the Lord breathes into these dead bones. Then it says once the Spirit of God comes in them, his people... ...they will be made alive. They will come to life. How true is that in the New Testament? When the Spirit of God comes, what's the very first thing that he does... ...when he invades the unbeliever's life... ...who is now first trusting in Jesus? They come to life... They were dead in their sins and transgressions. Now they're regenerated. They come to life. They were dead in their sins, unresponsive to God, running and rebelling, uh, running away from God and rebelling against his will. And now there is a desire to do what is right and to please God. There is something that stirs within them, growing every day, that wants to, to, to truly follow after him. The Bible calls this life. This is what we were intended for. There's dead bones. When they come to life, they are raised up as a vast army. It says, what verse is that? Verse, verse 10. They stood on their feet, a vast army. So the Holy Spirit is going to be given to them. They're going to come alive. And then what's the third thing he's going to do? And I will resettle you in your land. That's an interesting turn of phrase. I will resettle you in your land. Well, well, let's investigate this just a little bit because we don't want to just jump to conclusions. We've done our homework. We've kind of looked at this. What does it mean to resettle the land? A couple of weeks. Let's go back to chapter 36. Chapter 36. Verses 25 to 27. <clears throat> I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and, care, and be careful to keep my laws. Now just skip over to verse 33. This is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day 
I want you to highlight that phrase, on the day I cleanse you. When he cleanses them, what did we just read in verses 25 to 27? I will cleanse you. I'm going to put my spirit in you. And you will want to do what's right. This is very similar to what we just talked about. When he breathed into this vast, these dead bones to make them a living vast army. On that day that I cleanse you. When do you suppose that would happen, by the way? On the day that I cleanse you. Do you not think that it's when they finally turn to the Lord, whoever these people are, when they finally turn to the Lord and they are made alive and God's spirit is placed within them and they're made alive and now they want to follow him and do what God wants them to do rather than what their former rebellious hearts wanted to do. Because why? God has gotten rid of that heart of stone that wanted to rebel and he's given them a heart of flesh, a tenderness and a longing. Just something inside of them. I want to do God's will. On that day when I cleanse you from all your sins, I will rescue your towns. Excuse me. I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. I want to pause here for just a moment and I need to ask a very important question. Did this happen in 1948? Because if this happened in 1948, we should see a nation of Israel completely following after Jesus Christ. Isn't that what it says? On the day that I cleanse you, I will also resettle your towns and you will rebuild those ancient ruins. That is what this verse just now says. And the reason why I don't believe this applies to 1948 is because even though what an awesome thing it was that God led the Jews to their homeland that he had given them nearly 2,000 years. Well, uh, that was the time of Christ. Let's let's do the math here. All the way back in 1440 uh, that God gave them this land. B.C., 1440 B.C., Now add, so we're talking almost 2,500 years ago, God gave them this land. They're coming back to it. They haven't haven't lived there for 1,900 years. But is that what he is talking about here? As awesome as that is, that can't be what he is talking about here. Because if that was the case, then on that day that in 1948, he would have cleansed them from all of their sins. And we know that that has not been the case. For 68 years, in fact, Israel, even though there's many righteous things about them, they still, to this day, reject Jesus Christ. And I hope you praying with me that God will change their heart and he will lead them to their Messiah. But that has yet to come. Now, a small percentage have turned to Christ and the number is growing each day. But Israel does not know Jesus. Keep your fingers right there in in Ezekiel and turn now to Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is the first time that we read about, we read this phrase concerning the restoration of the fortunes of Israel. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Verses 2 and 3, he says this. When you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him, skipping down, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and gather you again from all the nations. Let me just read that, and I'm kind of cutting to the chase as I've written this down. When you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. And not before. Repentance will always precede restoration. It must. God doesn't restore apart from repentance. The nation of Israel has yet to repent. They have not been restored. So if that is not what he is talking about, I think it's a very fair answer to say that this restoration of the fortunes of Israel began with the remnant. Now, we already looked at that in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20 to 22. 
that was quoted in, in Romans 9.27 where he says concerning Israel and he quotes that passage and he's talking about how Israel will get saved. Not chapter 11 where he says all Israel will be saved, but the remnant will be saved. And God has had a special call upon his people. And on the day of Pentecost, as 3,000 gave their hearts to Christ, just a, a week or a few weeks later, when they see the man who is paralyzed and at the gate beautiful, and Peter and John, as they go to pray, they raise him up healed in Jesus' name. Um, several thousand more. The church grows to 5,000, it says. The Spirit of God is being poured out in their day on the remnant, on those who are Jews coming to Christ. The church for 10 years was made up almost exclusively of Jews. And God is beginning to fulfill this prophetic word that he gave through Ezekiel. And we in our day, we have become the rightful heirs of this passage in which the Holy Spirit, as we repent, he restores. Now, what did I say in the very beginning about restoration? Restoration, my goal in restoration in my business is to come as close to factory as possible. That's my goal. That is not God's goal. God's goal is not to come as close to factory as he can, but he wants to make us better. He wants to take us to, to, to doing things in his kingdom and restoration far beyond what we dreamed of. God wants to breathe into his people who repent, his, his, this breath, this life-giving breath that he calls his spirit. It is not just a force or a power. It is God in the flesh. When you read about the Holy Spirit, you read about him not as an it, but as a he. He is God himself. The moving and, and taking the work of Christ on the cross and applying it now to anyone and everyone who believes, bringing conviction of sin, leading them. God is pouring out his grace. God through his spirit is drawing them and they come to faith in Jesus Christ. He forgives them of their sin. The spirit washes them clean. The spirit of God sanctifies them. And then he has, as we read about in the book of Acts, he empowers them for a witness. Now, if you go back to Acts chapter 1, and that's where we're going to spend the remainder of our time. In Acts chapter 1, this is where we see the fulfillment of this idea of the Holy Spirit being poured out and God's kingdom coming and the restoration of the people of Israel who then become. Or, or the, the Gentiles are included and they become the church. This is the prophetic fulfillment as we read about this in Acts chapter 1. So concerning the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, you know, guys, you, you don't need to know about the timing of that. It's going to happen. It's not political. It's spiritual. Just as the kingdom of God has always been spiritual. But you guys don't need to know about that time. What I want you to know about, Jesus says in verse 8, is about this time. But. Did you highlight that word in verse 8? But. <coughs> but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. I want to ask you a question. How many of you would like to see more power in your life? By the Holy Spirit. How many of you would like to be able to walk in this? And you know what? It, it's hard. <coughs> if you have never walked in the power of the Spirit. And been led by the Spirit. In, in seemingly miraculous ways. God speaks to you. You do something. And whoa. Here's an opportunity to share the gospel. Okay. I'm just going to share Christ here. And the guy gives his heart to the Lord. Is that awesome or what? And God leads you. And if you've never experienced something like that, what I'm about to share with you, as far as you know, how many of you would like that, you know, you're kind of thinking, well, like what? What would I like? I mean, I've never experienced that. You're inviting me. You know, how would I like to experience something I've never experienced before? It's kind of hard to know. In which case, I'm going to tell you this. I think the Holy Spirit has so much more for us. But as a church, we have a tendency... 
to pull away from that? How do we, how can we experience it? Now, I could get into Ezekiel 47. In Ezekiel 47, that's the passage that talks about the, it says there is a, a, a water flowing from the south side of the temple. And it flowed eastward towards the Dead Sea. And every thousand cubits, it got deeper and deeper, ankle deep. And then Ezekiel was told to step in another thousand cubits, oh, knee deep. Thousand more cubits, waist deep. Thousand more cubits, a raging river that no one could swim through. The, and that river is the Spirit of God. And wherever it flows, it says it brings life. It brings life. The Spirit of God today, through you, through the ministry of the Word of God, the Gospel, the Spirit of God brings life. That is a guarantee. It brings light where there is darkness. <clears throat> it is so powerful. And here's our problem. Here's our problem. We don't like things that are more powerful than us. If we can't control it, it's scary. We don't like it. And we, we, we keep it at arm's length. But this spirit of God that begins to flow through us, he wants to become a raging river that you have no power over. You try swimming across it and it will take you away. This, that demonstration is saying to Ezekiel, I've got something so awesome for you, you will not be able to control it. It will be beyond your abilities. Some of you here are good teachers. The Holy Spirit, when he gets a hold of, of his people and anoints them to teach, they are powerful teachers. Some of you have the gift of mercy. And in your own strength, mercy is, is a good thing. It, it can kind of extend mercy where maybe tough love should be introduced. Uh, but when that mercy is anointed by the Spirit, it is powerful in ministering truth that just gets right to the heart and breaks chains. When someone is anointed prophetically, I mean, they can kind of come up with words maybe in their own mind and in their own strength, but when the Spirit of God anoints someone prophetically, those words are spot on. And they too, Isaiah 61, breaks chains, sets the captives free. You see, when the Spirit of God anoints us, it takes us far beyond our natural abilities. We have some awesome instrumentalists here. And I, they're anointed by God. I remember one particular gentleman years ago. I, I truly, it, it blew me away. He was, he was a trumpeter. And he was just doing a little instrumental piece. When he played, I thought they were doing something with the sound system. Because it sounded like it was coming from way above. And it, it truly sounded like the voice of angels. But I know that it wasn't. But when he was playing, it, I was just like, what is going on? Where is that coming? He's playing a trumpet, but that does not sound like a trumpet. It was amazing, and you could sense the presence of God. And the, the only thing I could understand is God anointed this man powerfully, and people were being ministered to. It, it was awesome. I'd never seen something like that before. You see, when the Spirit of God gets a hold of us, he wants to take our little talents and abilities and kind of blow them out of the water and say, now let me do this. Let me in. Let me anoint. Jesus says um, in, in John 4, he said to the Samaritan woman, I have living water for you. In John 7, 37, he says, come to me and drink and streams of living water will flow from within you. Is that awesome or what? You see, here is our problem. We understand the truth, Ephesians 4.13, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the whole, the, a having believed you were marked in, marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who's a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. We kind of grasp this idea, okay, the Holy Spirit's a deposit. But let me tell you this. That number one, that deposit in the Greek, it's erabon. It means down payment. When you make a down payment on the house, is it like 90% of your house? Or is it like a small percentage? 10%, 20% maybe, maybe more. But it's a small percentage compared to the whole thing. That's the deposit of the Holy Spirit in you, okay? 
And, and the Spirit of God is the deposit, and he wants to... There, there's more and more to come, okay? And finally, by the time we get to heaven, it is an awesome deposit and inheritance that we have. But we are building, church. We are building in that deposit. So we understand this concept of deposit, but... I think sometimes we misunderstand that deposit as if it's a static deposit, like a a static reservoir. And some of us, the Holy Spirit is is kind of there and chilling and and that's it. Kind of like the Dead Sea in which everything flows into it and nothing flows out of it and it's dead. And Christians can sometimes be dead. Yes, there is the deposit of the Spirit. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But my Bible talks about a river, church. He's not just talking about a deposit. He's talking about something that's living. It's powerful. It moves through us and touches everything. It makes alive everything that it flows to. Everything that it flows to. And so here's my point. The first thing I think we, we tend to mistake is that the spirit is static. And the spirit is just a deposit when he's a river. He's an active, powerful river that flows. And if you step into him and you allow him to fill you, he will sweep you away and take you beyond your natural abilities and talents. And he will use you verbally with serving. And he will impact those around you. He will change you too as a result. But he wants to impact people around you. So we need to understand that first. These disciples were about to receive this deposit that was not a static reservoir, but an active flowing river. And they needed to have this mindset. This isn't Jesus, I just want you. It's going to be Jesus and me, jam, some some. High school ministry was named Jam. Jesus and me. Well, you know what? If you're going to be a high school ministry, and I don't want to be too critical here, but it's got to be about more than just Jesus and me. The Holy Spirit is not a static reservoir's deposit. He's an active, flowing river. Streams of living water flowing through us. So the more self-centered we become, which, by the way, is what we need to be cleansed of, The more that we are cleansed of that selfishness and inward focus where there's lusts and anger and it's about me and my pleasures and what I want and our focus is outward and we pray fervently in that direction, then the Spirit of God has the opportunity. We are primed for the Spirit of God to be that river that flows through us. Number two, as you were to read through this, we don't have time to do this, but if you were to read through chapter one, and most of you I would imagine have, When Jesus ascended on high, the Holy Spirit did not immediately come at that moment, did he? That's why Jesus said you need to wait in Jerusalem. Now, most of you realize that the gospel according to Luke is the prequel. Well, maybe we shouldn't say prequel and sequel. There's the gospel of Luke and then there's the sequel, the book of Acts. Okay, Both of them were written by Luke to Theophilus. Part one, part two. The end of Luke, chapter 24, we see Jesus, he's ascending up and it says they left, uh, they, they left and went to Jerusalem and they stayed continually in the temple praising God. Then we pick it up and it kind of steps back just a little bit. He's talking about for 40 days preaching the kingdom of God, Holy Spirit. Uh, you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? That's not for you to know about. But I'm going to empower you when the Holy Spirit comes. And then he rises up 10 days later. The Spirit comes. Here's my question. What did they do in those 10 days? It says they went back to Jerusalem. They, were, they remained in the temple, continued in the temple, praising God. If you want to have the Spirit of God, in a way, you can have him ankle deep, you can have him knee deep, you can have him waist deep. I would venture to say that's where most of the church is content. You can have the deposit of the Holy Spirit, but that is not the purpose of the Spirit. As a matter of fact, when Ezekiel was taken to that point in which it was over his head and he could not cross it, when he came out, The angel said, what do you see? 
And he didn't look back to the river and say, what do you think I see? I see a raging river. I'm not going to go there again. No, he said there were trees with fruit all around. And everywhere the river went, there was light. That's what he saw. It's that point in which we are immersed in the spirit, not ankle deep or knee deep or waist deep, flowing, jumping into this river. And that's what they were seeking to do. They were seeking to prepare their hearts to persevere in prayer. They didn't know if they were going to wait 10 days or two days or two years. But they were going to wait. And they were going to press into God. I can remember when um, many times for me, I don't know what your experience is in fasting and prayer. For me, when I think about waiting on the Lord, I think of fasting and praying. For me, that's, that's sacrifice. I, I love my wife's cooking. I look forward to it. I love it when Juliana on Saturday, Sunday night, she's, she plans the entire weekend. She knows Saturday morning what she's cooking Sunday night. And she goes, oh yeah, and this is, we're going to have this. And Sunday morning, oh yeah, Dad, and we're going to have this. And it's like, you're tantalizing me. I'm so looking forward to, to family. And so, you know, I love it. And then she gets her sisters involved in there sometimes and, and slaves her brother. And, you know, there they and they produce this awesome meal. And I'm looking forward to it. And... I hate fasting. I, I really do. I, I'm just confessing that to you. I hate fasting. But sometimes things that you hate aren't always bad, you know? When I was a kid, I hated my vitamins until Flintstones came out, okay? You know Flintstone vitamins? The chewable kind? Yeah. But fasting is powerful. I don't know about you, but for me, when I fast... It's like God never gives me breakthrough, whatever I'm fasting for. It could be a a one-day fast, a three-day fast, a seven-day fast, a ten-day fast. I'm not going to go beyond that because I don't think I've fasted beyond ten days. The Lord's going to call me to do that soon. I know he will. But the answer never comes during the fast. The answer seems to always come after the fast. I remember a three-day fast in particular. This is when we were in Virginia Beach. I had a, my lawn business, and I had lost a number of accounts. And I was really struggling. God, you got to do something here. I don't know what you're going to do, but I need something to happen. Fasted three days the very next day. The very next day, I got a call from an apartment complex that had gone with another company instead of me at the beginning of the season and said, Mike, could you please... Please, please, please come back and take care of our lawns for us. And I said, ah, let me think about it. Yes, I will. And I, I knew that God had answered our prayers. And then God opened the door to be able to, to service an, another account um, for uh, Regent University. I had to get there at 10 in the morning to cut the grass in the islands because the cars would hang over the islands and they couldn't get cut. So I had to get there real early. And that was my job, cut all the islands in their huge complex. God provided, but I had to wait. Maybe it was three days, maybe it was a week. And I want to ask you, are you a good waiter? Or do you have a tendency, if you don't get what you want right away, you just say, I'm done with this, God. You know, where are you? Yeah, you want to place your order right now, drive up to the drive-thru and get what you've ordered. And God doesn't work that way. He wants to know, and how about the parable of the man who comes to a friend late at night? It's midnight, and he says, hey, I need some bread. And he's asking for bread. Hey, can I spend the night? And he's thinking, what are you? I'm in bed. You know, I'm comfortable with my family here, and you're knocking on the door. Would you please go away? And he keeps knocking, and he says, the guy is going to get up because of of the man's, are you ready for this word, importunity? How many of you know what the word importunity means? Wow, that means bold persistence. But because of his bold persistence, he got what he wanted. That passage in Luke 11 segues into the giving of the Holy Spirit. How about Jesus when he gives the parable of the persistent widow? Does she just go to the judge a few times and says, "Ah, I'm giving up on this? No, she pursued it over and over every day, constantly going and seeking. And finally, the unjust judge gives her what she wants. And Jesus says, my God, my father is just. How much more will he give you if you press in, if you persevere? And he equates that with faith. Here's my question. When these disciples are there, waiting 10 days, they're worshiping, 
They're pressing in. They're praying. They were in one accord in prayer. They were unified. Ten days. They weren't working. Their jobs were in Galilee. Most of them were fishermen. The entire 12, they had abandoned their jobs. They were there. They were pressing into God. What do you want me to do? And they waited upon God. And they waited. And they were not going to leave until God did something absolutely miraculous. If you want to walk in that spirit, if you want to jump into that raging river, it's going to require that type of perseverance and faith and pressing in. And then lastly, (laughs) chapter 2 rolls around. And bold Peter, who had just denied Jesus 50 days before, three times he denied him. He jumps out there early in the morning. They'd just been speaking in tongues, and the people thought they were totally whacked out. And he says, you know what? I don't think you understand what's going on here. You think we're drunk. That's foolish. Who gets drunk at nine in the morning? This is what God has been promising us. This is the outpouring of the spirit, people. Come on, jump in the river. 3,000 did that day. Jumped in the river. This is the baptism with the spirit, the filling of the spirit, the outpouring of the spirit that he'd been promising all along. You know, church, sometimes I think we're just plain old afraid. I've heard that courage is fear that has said its prayers. You know, sometimes we're fearful. We we lack courage. There's an opportunity. Man, that's just going to... I could be embarrassed. What if they say no? What if they make fun of me? What if, what if, and we live by these what ifs, and we, we end up accomplishing, I'm starting to preach myself here, and we start accomplishing so little for his kingdom because of all of these what ifs and these fears. You know what? Just let your fears say their prayers and do it, okay? That's what courage is. Just do it. Peter stepped out. He just did it. They've been praying for 10 days. They've been fasting, I'm sure. They were in one accord. They've been worshiping. They've been seeking God and intimate with him. And they were not going to leave until God did something awesome. And God did that day. And Peter stepped up. And God did something awesome. You know, I I can remember the very first... I've been challenged to do something I had not done before. I was asked by a church to go door to door. I mentioned to you the Berean messenger, and, and half of my job, that meant 20 hours a week I was going to have to do this. Now, when I said yes to the job, I didn't realize exactly what I was going to need to do. I had to go to the door. I had to have a pen and paper in this questionnaire. I had to write down their name, their address, uh, their social security. No, I didn't have to do that either. But I had to get all this information. Did they even read it? If they read it, what did you like the most about it? And if they didn't slam the door in my face, I, was, I would then try to share the gospel with them. And I'm going to be honest with you. I, mean, I was terrified when I started doing that job. I mean, this is a guy that for two years, 11th and 12th grade, I had been witnessing up to three times a day. And I loved witnessing. Now I was in a totally different scenario. And I was scared to death. And I just, you know what, I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to do it. And I can remember the fear knocking on each door, ringing the doorbell, hoping and praying they weren't home. And then they would come to the door. Okay, here's another one. And you just start going through it. And you know what? After a while, weeks, months, I I didn't hate it anymore. (laughs) And I actually looked forward to it. And God did something in my heart. And he put a a desire to evangelize even in really hard places. You know, one of the things I want God to restore in me and not just restore, restore, but to take even to newer, do something even greater is in this area of evangelism. I want to be bold again. I'm not saying that, that I'm not at times, but I feel like there's this fear that God wants to get rid of. And so here's what I want to ask you, and we need to wrap this up. What does God want to do in your life right now, tonight? 
The thing that you wrote down in the very beginning of the sermon, what was it? Look at that one more time. Do you want to see God do What is it that you want God to restore in your life? How bold and, and spirit-empowered do you want to be in praying for that to come to pass? What do you want to see God do in your life? How do you want God to use you? To what degree do you want God to fill you with his joy, like Sarah Joy was talking about tonight? Or fill you with compassion so that, it, as Paul says, his compassion compels me in ministry. And I want that type of compassion to compel me, don't you? Can we seek God right now? Can you stand with me? Can we ask that God would move in our heart? I don't care where you are at in your relationship with the Lord. I know that for me, as I am looking forward for us, God taking us as a church to another level, another step, doing things for some of you, you've never been door to door and you're going to find yourself doing that and you're going to like it. I'm telling you right now, you're going to like it. No, God's going to open some really cool opportunities and you're going to share Christ and people's lives are going to get changed right in front of you. Do you believe that? Maybe that's never happened to you before. God can do that. Are you willing to jump into the river? Are you willing to let the Spirit of God so fill you? Or are you still counting the cost, wondering if it's too high, wondering if it's going to affect your reputation? Are you too afraid to share the gospel with your boss or that person who's the next cubicle next to you? You need to jump in the river. You need to just do it, church. So let's pray right now. If you want to pray where you are, if you want to come to the altar, let's cry out to the Lord that the Spirit of God be poured out upon us and that these fears are gone in Jesus' name and that the Spirit of God so saturate us and fill us that he's going to take us into that raging river in which we are at his mercy. God, that's where I want to be. I'm jumping in the river, Lord God. I, I, want to, I want you to so fill me. I want you to use me. I, I'm tired of mediocrity. I'm tired of the same old, same old day to day. I believe you have an adventure for me, God. And that adventure is in the river. And I ask you, Lord God, right now, tonight... Fill us with your Holy Spirit. If we have not been baptized in your spirit, then God, tonight, baptize people in your spirit. I ask you, Lord God, that we would be done with mediocrity. We would be done with fear. We would be done with making sure everything is risk-free. And we would press into you and press into you and we wait upon you and wait upon you and pray and never give up and seeking you and knocking and knocking and knocking until the door is open. The Spirit of God empowers us and strips us, God. Strip us right now. Cleanse us, God, as your people. That our, our focus is ourself. I want to be done with that, Lord. And so, God, this is my prayer. Take my heart and every heart here that's humble before you and is desperate and crying out to you. Take our heart right now, God. And change it. Overwhelm it. Crush pride. Demolish selfishness. Rid us of self-pity and self-focus. And fill us with your view, your vision. Give us your eyes to see, God. People, people in the church who are hurting and need ministry. People in the world who are dead. They're without God. They're without hope. They need Jesus. And they need to hear Jesus from us. And I'm just asking you, Lord, that you would do whatever is necessary in our hearts, Lord. Whatever's necessary. Change it. Break it, renew it, restore it. Take us to that place in the river. If we're ankle deep or knee deep or waist, 
Take us to that place in the river that's raging, overwhelming, overpowering, scary. I want to go there, God. That's my heart's cry. I want to see your spirit poured out in this generation as no other generation. And I want to be a part of that, God. I want to be a part of that wave of your spirit that sweeps America. We're lost, Lord. Your church is veering off course. But you have a plan for those who are following after you. You raise them up. You multiply them in this generation, God. And you renew America. You restore it, God. You take it to that place, Lord, where there's sweeping revival. There's brokenness throughout the church of Jesus. And there are people who are hungry and desperate for you, God. Spirit of God, just come right now. Come in our midst and fill this place. Shake this place. Rekindle a fire in our hearts that's grown so dim. Make it a raging fire, God. our fears, our shyness. God, give us such holy boldness. As we draw near to you, break our hearts in prayer for the lost and the hurting. For that person in the church who's straying. Break us, God. And as we pray fervently, God, may we see miracles. May everywhere your spirit goes through us bring life. Bring life through me, Jesus, please. Bring life through everyone in my family, God, please. Everywhere they go, may they bring life. Pray for this church, God, power line. Everywhere we go, in the workplace, at the YMCA, Father, at a community center, wherever you send us, at the bank, at Walmart, God, may we bring the life of, of God that's in us. May we bring that and may it overflow to others. Please, God. 